Well, this morning uh, we're beginning a new sermon series entitled Love Gives. We actually began it last week, just not much fanfare there. But we're talking about this, uh, these two important words, love gives. And for us, as you'll see when you leave this morning, it's not just a sermon series. It's an initiative. It's a future. It's a vision we believe that God is calling us to when you exit, any exit today, uh, not now, but after the service, You'll be given a, a printed piece. We don't really do printed pieces much around Fonder Church, so you know it's really special. But it's our heart. It reflects prayer and fasting and wise counsel and unity and energy and what we believe God is calling us to be, what He's calling us to go for, to go after. Have you ever been involved in an organization and you just don't know what it's about? You lose focus. You drift. Uh, people grow bored, uh, possibly bitter. And we don't want to be that church. We want to be a church, as we said last week, to follow Jesus. It's to live a life of adventure. It's to possess an awareness of the world in which we live. So I want to begin this message with this statement on the screen. Believe it to be true. It is a human thing to want to do a significant thing. Let me say it again. It's a human thing to want to do a significant thing. Ask a four, five, six-year-old child the famous question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they, they won't say things like, I want to be an accountant. I'm interested in insurance. I really feel a pull toward tax law. They say things like astronaut, police officer, ballerina, Batman, Superman, Avengers, ninja warrior, Jedi knight. In the heart of every child, especially little boys running around, they want to serve the weak and save the world. God has put greatness, the desire for it, in you. I think it's in your DNA. I think God created you that way. Along the way, something happens and that desire lays dormant or it just doesn't get roused in a way, in a God-honoring way, as it should we forget about it. Uh, those dreams are anemic and powerless, forgotten. They don't impact the world. It's a human thing to want to do a significant thing. To not just live life and worry about your carbon footprint, but to think about contributing to an eternal future. And so the question, if we say it's a significant thing or a human thing to want to do a significant thing, what is the significant thing? What is the contribution that God desires. It's funny how we don't have a clear vision. We live, we work, we pay bills, we love and recreate and procreate. We go through seasons and cycles. But what is significant? On a run recently, I think I'm training for another race in 2019, but I was on a long run. I was listening to a podcast called Freakonomics. And on this podcast, it had an economics uh, economist guide to parenting. And it asked the central question, what creates the best child? Uh, every parent wants to know, what, what are the ingredients? Is, is there a formula? Is it piano lessons? Is it private school? Is it AP classes? Is it karate? What is the formula there? What, what makes the best kid possible? And study after study, time and time again, it yielded results that were very clear. A lot of extracurricular activity doesn't produce the best kid. Uh, pushing your child toward everything doesn't mean that he or she will become a jack of all trades. Piano lessons don't necessarily mean that you will instill in them a love of music. Karate doesn't necessarily lead to a life of focus and devotion and discipline. 
The study shows that overparenting leads to stressed, unhappy children. The study reveals that overparenting leads to stressed, unhappy parents. Parents who think their children are some sort of chemistry equation, that there's some mysterious missing ingredient that they haven't put in the equation, and the whole thing is just going to blow up. And as I listened to these experts reveal these studies, I thought, how can we miss it in this area? How can we, called to to be fruitful and multiply cause, called to raise up warriors, women and men who take on the world and live a life of significance, how can we so easily miss what really counts? So, children of God, what counts? What really matters? A little more than a year ago, through fasting and prayer, through interaction, some of us met a particular weekend. We sensed that this is what God is calling us to. It comes from a letter that we've studied recently, an epistle of the New Testament written by Paul. It's in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, part B. And it says this, this beautiful phrase. I'm going to say it once and then I'm going to have you say it with me a couple of times. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. This is what a life of significance means. It's what we want our church to be about. Would you say it with me? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. One more time with some gusto. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. This is what matters. What's significant? What counts? Faith. You ever heard the expression people of faith? I was watching the news related to some of the tragedies, the suspicious packaging and the unfortunate shooting over the weekend. Terrible tragedies. And they were talking about people of faith. And I thought, you probably thought this before, we're all people of faith. Like objects, like moths to a flame, uh, we, we are creatures of faith. The only difference, what separates us, and I bet there's a lot of unity in this room, but what separates us is what is the object or who is the object of our faith. The only thing that counts is faith. And I love you enough to tell you this morning, I hope you're having less and less faith in yourself and more and more faith in our God. To admit your need, to confess your sin, to move toward repentance, to exhale, confess your need and admit where you go wrong. And to inhale, to appropriate His power and His love. Having faith in Him. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Jesus put it this way in the greatest sermon ever preached. He talked about what really counts, what matters, what's significant. He talked about it in terms of treasure. If you have an open Bible or you want to open your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 6. In a moment, we're going to put it on the screen. Matthew chapter 6. We are going to read from the ESV verses 19 through 24 in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, 19 to 24. What is your treasure? What is significant in your heart? We're going to define treasure today as what you seek to keep because of the value that it holds in your life. What you seek to keep because of the value that it holds in your life. Matthew chapter 6, y'all ready? I am. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye, so it's a fascinating statement here. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. A strong declarative statement here. You cannot serve God and money. I want you in your mind's eye, uh, I would say close your eyes, but some of you'd fall asleep. Some people did at the 930. But just uh, if you would, just in your mind's eye, with your fertile imagination, picture a junkyard. It's an old salvage heap. And it's rusty and old and just dark and dingy. And there it is. You, You pictured it, right? Now think about this. There was a day when those objects were shiny, bright, and new. There was once a day when someone valued those objects in the junkyard that you're picturing in your mind. There was a day when someone said, I want that. A day when someone says, I'll pay money for that. A day probably when someone says, I'll pay really good money for that. So church, what happened? Moths got it. Rust got it. Thieves got it. It ended up in a junkyard. Jesus is saying that very thing. Jesus knows this about us. Remember, we're defining a treasure as something you want to keep because of the value that you place on it. And here's what Jesus is not saying. Really important, I want you to know this. Jesus is not saying, do not treasure. All right? He's not saying, do not treasure. In fact, Jesus knows. He knows how He's made us. And He knows that in the heart of humans that we are treasure creatures. We are treasure hunters. We are treasure seekers. We move toward what we think is valuable. And so Jesus is saying to us, be careful what you treasure. Do not treasure this. Do treasure this. He knows. He knows that we're treasure creatures. He knows that your heart has desires. That's a good thing. You know, there's religions There's isms and schisms and branches of this thing called religion and philosophy where it says that the road to the good life is the elimination of all desires. Can I tell you, that's not the way of Jesus. In fact, God, the God we serve gives us desires and gives us good desires and allows us to richly enjoy things. But He says, be careful. I'm giving you this warning. Do not store up for yourselves treasures, things, and things that don't matter. The Greek word, uh, Jesus uses this word treasure five times in this short stretch of Scripture, five times. And here's the Greek word for it. It's the Greek word thesaurus. It's where we get our word thesaurus. And it means a treasure trove. It means a treasure store of words that have meaning. And Jesus is saying that your life speaks a word. Jesus is saying that there is meaning, there ought to be meaning behind it. And here's what He's saying. If you store up things, things then the moth is going to get it. If the moth doesn't get it, the rust is going to get it. If the rust doesn't get it, the thieves are going to get it. If the thieves don't get it, your greedy little kids are going to get it after you die. Jesus didn't say that, but He should have. But He says that. In other words, if your treasure is things, one day you need to know this. It's It's going to wear out. It's going to give out. It's going to burn out. It's going to rust out. It's going to rot out. It's going to run out. 
and one day you will be left without if your treasure is things. In the financial world, I hang out with some financial people just demonstrate how dumb I am in, the, in economics and all, but these financial people were telling me recently that there, there's an agency, an institution, there are women and men really smart who are called market timers, and market timers know about the market. They know about the timing of the market. They look and they identify trends and patterns. They see signs and they know when you should invest and when you shouldn't invest and when you should reinvest. And Jesus is the greatest market timer ever. And he's telling us when and how and where you and I should invest for the optimal human existence, the maximum life of flourishing. Jesus, the market timer, is telling us. And he's bearish on one and he's bullish on the other. And he's not down with earthly treasures and he's really up on eternal treasures and he's calling us to be that way. In American church, consumption is killing us. We said last week to follow Jesus is to live a life and adventure and to possess an awareness of what's happening in our world. And we need to do that. We need to go into our garages and to our closets and into our bedrooms and see all the stuff that we have and ask ourselves, do we need this much stuff? And the church in America, we're this sleeping giant. And most of us are here to consume. And so few open to the challenge to being a contributor. Jesus is saying, do not store up for yourselves treasures where moth, rust, and thieves get it. He's calling us to something entirely different, resoundingly better in following Him. In 1915, IBM, y'all remember IBM? They're called Big Blue. They, they went public. They had an initial public offering on the New York Stock Exchange in 1915. Now, I want to ask you a question. If you were to have bought one share of IBM stock in 1915, what would you be worth today? Okay, I want you to guess. Turn to the person next to you. You're saying, how, there's no way. How can even... Uh, what would you be worth if you bought one share of IBM stock in 1915? The correct answer, you'd be dead, so you'd be worth nothing right now, okay? So Jesus, you see, is dialed in to this when we are not. Jesus gives us the best investment advice ever given. Will we take it? Years and years ago, I think we're kidless in the room today so I can be free, but years ago when, we, when all three of our children were little, Susan and I, we were about to make a big purchase. We were at a furniture store and we found a sofa that we both loved. And to be honest with you, we loved the sofa, despite what Jesus said. We uh, fell in love with the sofa together and we just knew that he was calling us to have the sofa. It was a bright, light green sofa. And when the salesman in the furniture store knew, when he learned that we had three children under five and a half, six years of age, he said to us, do not store up for yourselves treasures on the bright, light green sofa where children will spill food and drink and where stains will be so readily noticed. Store up rather for yourselves treasures on a dark brown sofa where the stains will not be noticed by anyone. And we did not listen to him and to his warning. We wanted the bright, light green sofa and we brought it. And does anyone, do you want to guess what the number one rule was when we brought the bright, light green sofa home? What was the number one rule? 
Don't, yeah, okay, don't sit on it. <laughs> don't drink on it. Don't carry food past it. Don't walk past it. Don't look at it. Don't think about it. Now, how funny. The purpose, the primary reason we bought the bright light green sofa was to enhance our family, was to create interaction and memories and fun and bring people together. But the number one rule, don't sit on it. And I told the kids, do not sit on this sofa. You can sit there and you can sit there and you can enjoy this beautiful garden that mom and dad have created, but do not eat from this fruit. Do not sit on this sofa. Do not eat fruit on this sofa. And one day, they did not trust me. But no, really, one day, truthfully, there was a jelly stain on the sofa. The fall from grace. And I came home one day and Susan had the kids lined up. And I knew they weren't going to tell her. They had never seen her so serious and so mad. One of them was a baby, so he couldn't speak. But the other two, they weren't going to talk. They weren't going to tell her. I knew they wouldn't tell her because I was the one who spilled jelly <laughs> on the sofa. Isn't it funny? Isn't it funny to think about? That sofa at that time was the number one treasure in our home. And today I want to tell you that sofa's been long gone. We still have the three children. But listen to me. Every day, you and I, we live in this world and we walk by what Jesus treasures the most. People. And I'm telling you what's silly in our past, silly in our marriage, is serious business with you and I today. Because we get consumed with what we want and what we like and we focus on it and we believe its promises. Have you learned this week, I did, that McDonald's is discontinuing the Happy Meal? Now, isn't that sad? And there was a time when like, you went and got the Happy Meal and you thought, oh, I'm going to be happy because I've got the Happy Meal. And there's fries and a little burger and something to drink with a straw that you can poke into it and a toy. And I'm going to be happy because I have the Happy Meal. And what a parable for you and I to think that in our stuff, we're going to find happiness. And all around us, whether you're an extrovert like me or an introvert, you pass people every single day. Do they matter? And can I say... These are unique times. I, I don't want to say the word unprecedented because I'm not the best historian in the world. I'm not God. I don't know it all. But I'm just telling you, with what's happening and the hate and the division, what an opportunity to be people of love. I was talking to a friend of mine, Lindsay, who was on the West Coast this week. And she was talking. She was telling me at Highland Village Friday night, bumped into her. She's like, man, they're so friendly out there. They're so friendly out there. Remember when the South used to be really friendly? Now, I love Mississippi, but I walked to church today. I walked here, and I passed two people, and they didn't speak to me. And maybe it was the vest. I don't know. Maybe it was the fact that I had my hands in the air praying for today's services or had my sermon notes in one hand. I don't know. But, like, there's an opportunity to love people, an opportunity to build a bridge, an opportunity to have an open door, an opportunity to demonstrate faith in our God and express it in love to them and to speak, to learn their name and know their story, to interact with them and to treasure the person that God has put in front of us. But we love our stuff. 
and it will wear out, and rust will get it. And as you visualized a few minutes ago, there will be a junkyard, and it will end up there. But what matters, what counts, what lasts? As a church, we're saying and we're calling you to it. If God is calling you here, we're saying that we want to be a church where people find faith and express it in love. They find faith and express it in love. It's the only thing that counts. This verse in Galatians is a contrast between love and the law, between history and tradition and rituals that had a time and place and purpose, But Jesus moves the ball forward and says to us, this is the law that matters above all. It's the law of love. You have to have faith in it, faith in me, and then you express it in your daily life. That's what matters. And it's a contrast between what was what what once mattered. And so for us as a church, for us to say it's not about being religious. It's not about certain things. It is about this thing. And we get funny and fuzzy with parenting and furniture purchases and all kind of things. But will we realize what matters? And will, will we summon the courage to follow Him and go toward it? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. We follow a man, a God-man. And I want to show you about your Savior. Mark ten fifty one, a passage with a blind man. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Keep that passage up if you would. It's so simple, we miss it. Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? Can I say to you today, that's what love does. Love asks the question, what can I do for you? It is our desire. It's our desire to be a church that people find faith and express it in love. To be a church with that preposition, that preposition that Jesus uses, what can I do for you? We would ask for our city. We would ask for our community. And I believe God has strategically placed this body of believers in this place in this time. For us... Here's part of the vision I believe God has given us. For us to be a church in the city, for the city, with a facility that facilitates kingdom work. Some of you, like me, could walk to church. Most of you cannot. Many of you drive many miles. And for that, that excites us. That's a good thing. We have a new groups pastor, John Wood, and he's going to help us strategically think about our future. Nick Crawford and John and others with me thinking about our future, how we can create groups, community groups in geographical areas for people in Rankin County and Madison, Clinton and other places. Obviously, Fondren and Bellhaven and Northeast Jackson. But for us, our call is to everybody whose heart is inclined toward this place to say, let us, no matter where you live, let's vote for Jackson. Let's not give up on this place. Look, I've made calls recently. I've met with the Fondren Renaissance Foundation person. I've called the bank that's building next door. I've talked to the city of Jackson. Nick Crawford made a phone call. When Nick called him, they came and fixed a pothole. How great is that? I know somebody, Jackson, they called Jackson. When they got him on the phone, they came and fixed a pothole and they repaired a tire that allegedly was busted because of the pothole. Can I tell you that time and time again, we have a city that we're called to love and to not give up on. And we want to be a church in the city, for for the city, with a facility that facilitates kingdom work. 
So hear the heart. I don't want us to go organizational or institutional. Stay with me for a second. But I want you to think about our modern day God. My wife is from the West Coast, from the South Bay of Los Angeles. When she moved here, she learned that we worship our God is SEC football. Am I right? Can I get an amen? What's the logo of the SEC? It just means more. Somebody said Roll Tide. Can we get that out of church today? Right just <laughs> over there. I see some War Eagle folks right there. Let's just, no. The, the motto of the SEC does seem like Roll Tide, but technically it's, it just means more. And, and nobody in the room, unless you're an outsider, a strange visitor from another land here today, you don't need me to tell you that it matters more. So I want you to think with me for a moment. I'm going to draw a contrast between our Saturday fall places of worship and this church facility that you're sitting in. Our football teams um, have a place that costs hundreds of millions of dollars when it was built and all the renovations. In fact, the two big schools in Mississippi recently did renovations in the 55 to $70 million range. And you know these football games, they have home games. You know how many they have a year? An average of seven home games a year. Seven home games a year. And when you attend those games, the average college football game lasts three hours and 12 minutes. Now, I know it's a whole weekend for most of us, but it lasts three hours and 12 minutes. When the game is played, the actual game itself, when players are playing, when they're running, hustling, and tackling, you know how many minutes the average football game actually has plays in it? How long that is? Any guesses? 12 minutes. 12 minutes of actual football play. But we invest hundreds of millions of dollars into these facilities. Renovations recently of the 55 to $70 million range for seven home football games a year that last three hours and 12 minutes with 11 to 12 actual minutes of play. These are our places of worship. But I want to call your attention to where you're sitting just for a moment. I want your heart and your mind to be open to this. What is the value of this place that you're sitting in? Is it more than where you invest seven weekends? Because here we have church 52 weekends out of the year. 52, actually 51, we take a Sunday off. We're very pagan and we get criticism, but it's just what we believe God's called us to do that Sunday between Christmas and New Year. But we meet here 51 times out of the year. Can you put a price tag on that? We have weddings and funerals and graduation events. And as we did a couple weekends ago, baby dedications. How important is that? Does anybody want to stand up and put a price tag on that? What is that worth? To use this space every week and many times in between, what's the value of that? Before you have an answer, I want to tell you a quick story of an email I got about a year and a half ago. We'll never forget this email, Susan and I. It was from a young lady who stumbled in here years ago, a dance major at Bellhaven. She'd grown up in church, and things went really bad and dark in her life. She came one Sunday, though she had been mad at God, mad at men. She came and she sat in the back. And she wrote to me a couple of years later that when we began to sing that second song, I began to cry. God began to do a work in my life. My story was I was in a church and a student pastor sexually assaulted me, violated me numerous times, and I held on to this deep, dark secret. I had issues of trust 
had issues of fear. I questioned God, His very existence and His goodness. How could this happen? How much longer can I go on with this secret? And she came here and God used this church and His Word to pierce her heart and to change her life. Is it a daily struggle for her? Yes, we still keep in touch with her. There was a, a Sunday where uh, after the email and my response to her email, she came up and introduced herself and Susan and I stood here and hugged her and had tears of knowing how God has used our church and that He's working in her. In Acts 2.37, you see my job is not just to keep you awake for 35 minutes. In one of these early sermons it said when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brother, what shall we do? That's the goal. That's the vision of the Word of God going forth from here is that people would be cut to the heart. Sometimes we yawn. Sometimes the sermon begs the question, what's for lunch? But sometimes God gets a hold of a heart and who in this room could, could a price tag on that? This young lady just a year and a half ago walked the aisle to become a bride. And she told us how God is bringing her delight and intimacy and she's learning what marriage means and how to trust a man and how to give herself. What a blessing. How powerful to think about this space and how God uses it. October, most of you don't know, which is a tragedy, is Pastor Appreciation Month. Put it on the calendar for 2019, would you? Nick Crawford is uh, the best executive pastor you, you, we could have. Great young man. I think this was his idea, and Mariah Carver executed the idea. But you see that little window there? That's sort of a prayer room for me. And every week I pray for us and for you, for what God might want to do. And in that room, if you go in there, there are framed quotes on the wall from some of you just saying something kind, about me. But it's bigger than that. And I think of one that, uh, and there's a notebook. RG, I just want to let you know how much FC means. I know sometimes the trees get in the way of the beautiful forest that has grown while you weren't looking. This church has been the catalyst in creating a church that has solidified my faith, taught me to be a bigger spirit follower, and encouraged me to live excited in the freedom of the gospel. Let me tell you how this church has blessed my family. My community is my family, and my church has become my community. I found the path to my son through the relationships that Fonder and Church helped foster. I can't get through this without being a stumbling idiot. But there was a couple, a retired couple in our church, and God, because He's connecting people here, because we have the physical space for people to connect, He connected these two. And this young couple who was not able to have babies on their own moved toward adoption, and they have a child because they knew this couple who knew a family that couldn't care for a child. How great is that? A couple of years ago, we did then what we're going to do in two Sundays. We had some panelists on the stage talking about Orphan Sunday. In two weeks, it's Orphan Sunday. So close to the heart of God. And we had panelists, Fondren Church people, share their story of sacrifice, of creating a loving home where children didn't have one. 
There was a couple that day. It wasn't a sermon from me. It was a group of people. And this couple, they're doctors. They travel to our church from Madison. They pass 50 churches on their way because it's Mississippi. And they walked down this aisle and they knelt. And they said, God is moving in us. And there's a little boy down the hall rescued from an orphanage that's cold and dark where babies didn't get touched. They got food and water, but they were never touched. And this guy won the lottery. He's got parents who are doctors and they love him and they follow Jesus. And they said to me, and I'm passing it on to you, God used our church that day to write this story. I want to ask you again, what is this facility worth? I know what state's facility is worth and old Miss's facility is worth that's used seven times a year for home football games where we pay hundreds of dollars per weekend and invest thousands of dollars if you're in a booster program for 11 minutes of football action. But what price tag can you put on this place? We want to be a church in the city, for the city, with a facility that facilitates kingdom work. It is my prayer that as we leave today, in a moment we're going to pray and take communion. And as you exit today, as I said at the beginning of the message, you'll be given a printed piece and it's entitled Love Gifts. And you'll see here this heartbeat, this vision for our church to be a place where people find faith and that faith is expressed in love. And you'll see it's a call for us to bring this place into the future. I asked our elders the other night, are we large enough to own and operate this building? One guy said, yes, absolutely. He's the visionary guy in our group. And the rest of us were like, well, okay, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But here's what I know. Do you know that this isn't our place? It's His. And we want this facility to be used, to be opened up. We'll always keep the traditional, beautiful elements of this sanctuary, but we're looking to open this place up to fix and repair and to create a place. You know, architecturally, every building has, sends a message. Do you know that? It either says, hang out or get out. And currently, we have a place many times over that says, get out. And we want a place where you and I, where we can connect, where newcomers can be welcomed, and where the fastest growing part of our church, the children will have a space and a commons area and a place that's open to welcome new people. And above it all, what's most exciting about our church and especially for the 30 and younger crowd and our staff are chomping at the bit but this is an opportunity for us to meet budget and I hope we do that but to go toward the future and to open up a community center located 100 yards behind me where we are dreaming about children and youth, about sports clinics and summer camps. We're dreaming about rehab programs where broken people can come and make connection and point toward hope and healing. Whereas Jesus' first sermon from Luke 4, when He opened the scroll and read from Isaiah 61, we would be a place where chains are loosened and people make connections and people find faith and they themselves learn to express it in love. Tuesday night, a couple of weeks ago, I left my office. I was hungry and wanting to get home. And as I opened the door, just, just behind me here, if that glass wasn't there, you could see it. And I opened the door to head to the parking lot to head home. And there was a young, younger deacon named Nicholas. He was sitting in the floor with a young boy, young man named Brandon. And I was struck by 
The fact they were sitting in the floor, that we have unused space, that I would love to see us open up. And they were in the floor. I told them they could go into my office. It's all theirs. And they seemed comfortable in that moment. I was struck by the contrast. The contrast in age, the contrast in size, the uh, contrast in skin color, the contrast in socioeconomic background. And I thought, you know, I know Nicholas. Some of you know Nicholas. He's, uh, as I said, a young deacon. Like, he's got a wife, a relatively new wife, and a brand new baby girl at home named Olivia. We dedicated her here Sunday night a couple of weeks ago. And I thought, Nicholas could be home with Olivia. And then I realized, I bet I'll know why he's not. Nicholas knows that Brandon goes home to a fatherless house. And so for an hour and a half, sometimes more, he wants to devote himself to mentor, to guide, and to help this young man into his future. I ask you, what price tag can you put on that? And the more we move into our future, let me tell you, it's not for us. Can I tell you, nobody's getting rich around here. Like I've got a swimming pool, it's pretty cool. But a friend rode my truck this week, he can tell you, I probably need a new truck. But I'm not getting one. And this is not about anybody getting rich. This is about us doing what we challenged you to do last week. And for some of you, look, there's, we're just a sleeping giant because only a few of us really give. But God instituted something called the tithe, and it's 10%. And it's not leftovers because no one ever has enough money to tithe because we spend and we spend and we spend and we give God our leftovers. And God doesn't do leftovers. He wants 10% off the top. And when Jesus came, He didn't change it. He called us into great greater levels of grace-filled giving. But the tithe is first fruits off the top. And let me say this. It's one thing to go, oh yeah, the only thing that counts is faith expressed in love. I'm down for that. But you know the thing? The thing, the very thing, it's why there are 2,350 verses in the Bible on money, materialism, and possessions. Because that's the thing that lets us know where our trust is. It's probably not greed for some of you. It's just fear. If I give to God, will He give back to me? And for Susan and I, as He has blessed us through these many, many years, we are praying and making commitments for us that have to do with not just strategic, systematic giving, but with sacrificial giving. What are ways we can increase our standard of giving? And what sacrifices can we make? We have too much. What would it look like? What would it look like to be a church in the city, for the city, with a facility that facilitates kingdom work? When you get this piece and you leave, I'm asking you not to throw it away or put it in the back seat or the floorboard on the passenger side, but to hold on to it. And there's a challenge here for us, if this is your faith family, for us to pray fervently, to cheer loudly, and to give generously. We can't, we won't be a church without generous people. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray over us. And everyone in the room who is a follower of Jesus is invited to come to the table, if you will, to take the cup and the bread, the bread representing the body of Christ broken for you, the cup 
His blood shed for you. You'll be directed toward a station and you'll see leaders there with the elements. And you approach that and just dip the bread into the juice. As they lead you, let me pray for us. Truly God, love gifts. And in a modern world, we look back at these early followers of Jesus who were pierced to their heart, cut to the quick, who asked the question, what do we do now? Who were gripped with the most revolutionary, historic demonstration of love. That this was not just another criminal on the cross executed by the Romans. This was you, God in the flesh. Life given sacrificially as an offering. Hands, arms outstretched. Demonstrating to us to even thousands of years later that you were a God who is not distant or detached. But you chose to come into the world and to enter every story and all the pain and all the suffering and all the suspicious packages and all the shootings and all the assaults and all the brokenness and all the pain in this room now. We worship you, Jesus, our Savior. You gave your all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Stand and sing, and would you follow the folks in front of you as we worship through communion.